Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of It's Crime Time. On this episode, I'm going to discuss a case that I only recently found out about a few months ago, yet it happened back in 1995, and it happened in my state. So it's kind of interesting, you know, of all the crime that I have witnessed um, in terms of documentaries and read about and everything and researched that I just heard about this. I might have heard about it a long time ago, but I don't recall there are a lot of documentaries about this and there are, um, well, I should say there is a movie about it that came out in 2016, which I haven't seen. And I am talking about the case of the Freeman family murders. All right, everyone, it's crime time. I'm going to place a warning here that the themes involved in this crime do involve racism, hate, and neo-Nazism. So if that is something that you cannot handle listening to, please feel free to maybe try out another episode or click away. I'll not be offended. I understand that everyone has their limits on what they are willing to hear and what they would like to, you know, put up with in a case. So totally fine with that. Also, another disclaimer, my microphone has been acting very strange, so I'm going to apologize ahead of time if you hear any popping noises or anything of that sort. All right, Dennis and Brenda Freeman met at a Jehovah Witness congregation where Dennis often came to speak. They, of course, fell in love, they got married, and decided to remain devout Jehovah Witnesses together and enjoy their faith together. And they lived across from their local Kingdom Hall at one point. They lived in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, which is not too far away from where I live. I believe this occurred in Allentown or near Allentown, Pennsylvania. Dennis's sister, Valerie, also lived with a couple at one point. I'm not exactly sure when she moved in. I do know when she moved out, however, but that's just a fact I came across that those two lived together. And then of course, Dennis's sister moved in. Dennis and Brenda then went on to have three sons together. Brian, who was born in 1978, David, who was born in 1979, and Eric in 1981. Brenda and Dennis also chose to raise their sons as devout Jehovah's. Many describe Brenda and Dennis as a very quiet couple. They enjoyed each other, they enjoyed their faith, and they just tried to raise their son to be their sons to be good religious boys and and you know have good morals. Of course, any parent wants their children to have good morals and grow up to be a good person, no matter what their faith is. So they were just described as being, you know, quiet people and, and nice people. Um, nothing, you know, out of the ordinary with their parents. An incident occurred at their local Kingdom Hall eventually with their father, and soon enough, the boys lost all respect for their father, their religion, and eventually respect for basically any morals that they would have, in my opinion. I do not know the incident that occurred. It's pretty unclear if you kind of research this case. However, I do know that it involved their father, Dennis, and some members of the congregation. And they saw their father as weak after this. And weakness was not something they looked up to. 
And of course, they didn't want their father to be weak. They wanted their father to stand up for himself and stand up for the family. And so I'm not sure what happened there, but they, they lost respect for their dad after this. So, And then eventually, at the ages of 12 and 13, they began experimenting with drugs and alcohol. Not saying this is okay, but a lot of teenagers do this. But they kind of took it, you know, um, too far. And they took everything too far, too far, which you'll find out later in here. They started getting into trouble. And they were eventually sent to a rehab facility in 1993. Weird enough. I always mention that I was born that year. And this is ultimately where they met a neo-Nazi. And they decided that they just loved what neo-Nazi had to offer them. I guess this man that they met really sold it to him. He told them, you know, that that he has so much freedom now that he's a neo-Nazi and that you know, he was violent and it got him basically whatever he wanted. And he just felt so free in this, um, in this belief system. So the boys were very intrigued by this and they of course were young and impressionable. So they decided, you know, Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna see what this new Nazism is about and we're gonna dive more into it. And unfortunately that's what they did. So they decided to denounce their faith and become neo-Nazis. And here's the fact I actually found. I knew a little bit about this, but a fact I found that during the Holocaust, Jehovah's were actually one of the groups, many groups that were persecuted. Um, they, there was about 30,000 Jehovah's in Germany before the Nazis came to power. And there were 10,000 or 10,000 of these were convicted and jailed simply for practicing their faith. And then another 10,000 renounced it. So an estimated 3,000 Jehovah's were actually sent to Nazi concentration camps. And about 1,700 of them were executed during the Nazis' time in power. So it just, it, it confuses me that the boys would want to go, you know, against, I understand picking something that is totally against your religion if you're mad at your religion and you hate it, but they, you know, their parents were still into this. And I can't imagine, you know, being a part of a group or having a belief system that would essentially make me have to despise my my family. So, but they were young, like I said, and impressionable. So, and they were mad at their parents, you know, they were mad at their fathers. So they, they took it really far and they went, they went with a belief system that ultimately force them to hate their parents. I mean, if they were Jehovah's, you know, but anyway, I'm rambling. So <laughs> when the boys entered 10th grade, finally, they began wearing army fatigues. Um, now, if you've ever seen people in the skinhead groups, you know that they often wear camo pants, Doc Martin combat boots, and they had these Nazi armbands, the, the Nazi armbands that Nazis actually wore when, you know, during the Holocaust. So they wore those freely and they were proud of it and they were not, you know, they were not afraid to spread their beliefs. They, in fact, they spread them all the time. They talked about them all the time. And eventually um, they, they took it very far and they got neo-Nazi tattoos with Brian getting Berserker tattooed along his hairline and David getting Sieg Heil across his hairline. And then Brian also had kind of a skull and bone swastika type tattoo on his neck. Their grandfather told a Newsweek reporter that they looked like monsters. And reports from the time stated that they garnered a pretty 
a pretty large reputation as being, you know, people that preached about racism and anti-Semitism and, and violence. They were very open, preached about it all the time, tried to get others on board. And so people just kind of thought, like, wow, these guys are, you know, they're monsters, they're weird, they're preaching hate and everything. They went from being like very quiet boys, getting even made fun of about their religion to being for some reason very outgoing about, you know, their new belief system. Brian's grandfather, Nelson Birdwell, also stated that Brian was an excellent public speaker. When he was 10 years old, he put a lot of adults to shame. His grandfather believes that the family's troubles actually began when Dennis became involved in that disagreement at church. So they had the disagreement, they got on drugs and everything, and here we are. An elder um, with the congregation also spoke and said that Brian and David had stopped coming to church meetings at the time and he blamed their interest, I guess, in neo-Nazism, in heavy metal music, which I'm not gonna judge, but a lot of a lot of people assume that metal music makes people bad. I am a huge metalhead and I'm not a neo-Nazi, so that's not true, obviously, but that's that's their beliefs in the congregation and that's what they help. A classmate, Dana Hirsch, described them as being really quiet, really mellow people. They wouldn't bother anyone. And then, of course, their classmates noticed this huge change when they returned um, to school, I guess, from their treatment. And they had these, I guess, the army fatigues and everything and wearing shirts that, that would say eternal hatred across them. And they talked about Satanism and racial hatred and violence, like I had already mentioned. So just kind of a, get an idea of their background and what type of people they are. By this time, the boys were rather large and intimidating guys. David was six feet, three inches tall and 245 pounds. And Brian was 215 pounds and six feet tall. So they were pretty big, big intimidating guys. Um, now I wouldn't find people like this scary. I don't tend to judge on looks. But I can understand why maybe, you know, their classmates and teachers and things were afraid of them. They were, you know, big guys, they had shaved heads, they wore Nazi symbols and medals and, you know, and had tattoos on their heads. I mean, so I can understand why people would find them, you know, weird looking or monstrous looking. Um, and they'd fought with their father on several occasions. Police got called, but nothing really was ever done about the boys in terms of you know, um, the law, arresting them or being charged or anything of that sort, which this was the 90s. So a little bit different than today. Things were handled a little differently. Their aunt Valerie was terrified of them. Um, their mom, their father and their little brother. So Brenda, Dennis and Eric, they were terrified of the boys. He, the, it was said that they, I mean, they basically terrorized their family all the time and Valerie was told by Dennis, which is the boy's father, um, her brother, that she would be best to move out of their home because I guess the boys didn't get along with her and I guess maybe their father was afraid something was gonna happen. So she did eventually move out. Brenda made attempts at getting help for her son. She was trying everything. She just wanted help for her boys. You know, she didn't care so much about herself. 
Um, she wasn't trying to do this for herself, like to be selfish because like she was too lazy to parent her kids or something. It was nothing like that. It was, she just wanted to get help for her son. She wanted them to be good people and, you know, get out of these, these beliefs of hatred and, and stop being violent and getting in trouble and messing their lives up. She would call various facilities and organizations. I found that she called or contacted about eight of them and I only could find a few. She contacted the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission and then she contacted a group that advocates in taking a firm stand with difficult children and this group was known as Tough Love and the Anti-Defamation League of Benai Brith, which is an organization that monitors hate group activities. Sorry if I pronounced that terribly. And this was to no avail. Um, the boys still snuck out. They actually took the family car that they were allowed to drive all the way to Michigan, about 800 miles away, to skinhead meetings and then to Atlantic City. So they were deep into this. They were deep into their beliefs, you know, to drive 800 miles away for, for just a meeting, you know, with skinheads, whatever, whatever goes on there. But they, um, they also collected hate literature and things of that sort. And their parents had finally just had enough of this. You know, they were, they were tired of them doing poorly in school and, and taking this car and, and sneaking off. So they decided, I guess, when the boys weren't home one day, that they were just going to sell the car so that the boys couldn't make any more trips with this car to skinhead meetings. And they threw out all of the hate literature in the home that, you know, the boys had collected because they just didn't want that in their home. You know, like I said, that wasn't their thing. They don't want that in their house. Um, this greatly angered the boys and it caused another altercation between them and their father. Brian also apparently told a classmate that if he'd been there at the time this happened, that he would have, I guess, killed him on the spot. And weirdly enough, their younger brother at one point told his aunt Valerie that you never know when you're going to die. So I'm not sure how the boys treated their little brother, but he was obviously terrified of them and he just... I mean, this is so eerie. He must have just been so afraid. He had a bad feeling something was going to happen, you know, to the family soon. So he did make that comment to his aunt. The Thursday before the incident, Brian was suspended from school for filling his standardized test with all kinds of racist slogans and lewd drawings. And then um, the next day after this, I guess he had a lunchroom confrontation with the school principal, Michael Platt. I'm going to warn you about this one. Brian did say, shut up or I'll throw you in the oven, you kike. So he was making rude remarks, um, which if you don't know what that term is, it's a very rude term that's used to call or describe Jews. It's yeah, disgusting term, but that is what he said to him. On February 26th of 1995, 17-year-old Brian Freeman, 16-year-old David Freeman, and 18-year-old Nelson Birdwell III, who, by the way, is their cousin, went out to the movies. They later returned to the Freeman home on Eretz Lane. The boys went to the basement, where Brenda had to come tell Nelson to leave several times. She believed the boys were drinking down there. They were probably being super obnoxious, and of course, it was late. They were trying to sleep, and, you know, their parents were just done with it. And it's, I mean, it's their home. They don't want, you know, the kids underage drinking in their freaking basement with their cousin. So they tried to kick him out. 
But Nelson just snuck back in several more times. Um, there's a window in their bathroom that he kind of snuck into and, and made his way back down to the basement. One final time, Brenda came down the stairs to tell Nelson that he needed to go home. And as she did this, Brian stabbed her several times. During this fight, Brenda was actually able to grab the knife, but Brian got it back, cutting his hand, and he then stabbed her again. He apparently told David and Nelson, if you guys puss out, I'll kill you both. So those boys were tasked with killing Brian and David's father, Dennis, as he slept in his bedroom. David and Nelson ran out of the room. They left Brian with his mother. David and Nelson then, of course, went into Dennis's bedroom. They bludgeoned him severely in the head with a pickaxe handle and an exercise bar where the rubber grips were removed. So I'm guessing it was a barbell. And they took this and they severely bludgeoned him with it. And then they entered um, the bedroom of David and Brian's 11-year-old brother, Eric, and they bludgeoned him to death with the pickaxe handle as well. And this whole thing is just depressing to me because all they wanted was, you know, to get, get them help. And some teenagers are nuts and won't accept it. And, you know, they get overly mad at their parents. And of course they regret it eventually, but I do believe that a lot of teenagers just don't realize the finality of death and the stupidity of getting pissed at your parents and killing them, you know, in a split second. So that's what they did. And they, of course they did that to their little brother as well. And Brian later reported that somebody went down into the basement again to finish off Brenda with the pickaxe after she had been stabbed because I'm guessing obviously they, they felt that she wasn't dead. And then they stole their mom's car and they drove to a skinhead associate's home in Michigan. On the morning of February 27th, Valerie Freeman, that's their aunt again, who lived nearby, went to the Freeman's home to search for her nephew, Eric. Eric often stopped by her home after school and he hadn't done it this day and she thought it was really odd because he did it all the time. She walked into the Freeman home and she happened upon this, you know, this terrifying grisly scene that that had unfolded and she found Brenda and Dennis and Eric brutally bludgeoned. Um, they were bludgeoned, bludgeoned to the point of being unrecognizable, apparently. Police were immediately phoned, and once the police learned of the missing boy's troubling history, these boys were instant suspects, and then, of course, a manhunt ensued. The extended family of the Freemans weren't shocked about what happened because, you know, all these things have been transpiring between the boys and their parents for such a long time now that they really weren't, they weren't surprised. On March 1st, there was a truck driver he had been stopped at a truck stop motel in Hubbard, Ohio, the night before. And he had called in to say that he had seen these three neo-Nazi kids at, at the hotel where he was staying. So the police headed over um, to the hotel, but the three men who the clerk identified as Brian, David and Nelson were already gone. The only thing they left in the hotel was an empty pizza box and somehow a record of two phone calls i guess maybe the, they made from the hotel room one call was for the pizza and the other was to a landline phone in hope michigan and this landline belonged to a man named frank hess 
So three days after the killings, the boys were actually located and captured at the home of Frank Hess. He was a known neo-Nazi in Michigan. Frank claimed he had been unaware of the murders, and this was true. Um, the police did say they knew of the Hesses and the fact that they were neo-Nazis, but they did not have any record of any crimes committed, you know, by these people. Michigan State Police um, Detective Sergeant Thomas Ninsberg and his partner agreed eventually, of course, to head over to Hess's place to check things out. They didn't think anything was going to be figured out or, you know, um, they, they didn't think they were going to find anything just based on one simple phone call that was made from the hotel. But they spotted Brenda's missing Pontiac. Mintzberg said, quote, we looked at each other in kind of amazement and said, I think the boys are here. End quote. After they spotted the Pontiac and thought that the boys were in the home of Frank Hess, they called it in or they called for backup and they kind of stayed out of sight. They just sat there surveilling the place for any sign of the three boys. Detective Thomas Forsberg headed over as backup, but by the time Forsberg had arrived, the Freeman brothers, Birdwell and Hess, all got into the Pontiac and then they set out. The three officers followed them to this pole barn in the middle of the woods and they called for more backup. So after they called for more backup, there was 10 officers surrounding this property. Police yelled for the men to come out with their hands up. The four men came out, so they complied. Quote, they were meek and mild at the time because they were so caught by surprise. They had no idea we were even out there, end quote. And that is a quote by Mintzberg. The officers eventually separated all four of the men. They took them to the Midland Police Department. They removed the boys' clothes as evidence, and they found some tiny drops of blood on Nelson Bergwell's t-shirt. Frank has explained that he met the brothers at a skinhead concert in Ohio, and he invited them to hang out at his place in Michigan if they were ever in the area. And that's when they had called him that night of the murders and they told him that they'd be nearby, but they never mentioned the murders. So basically they were essentially using him or his house as a getaway, but they didn't tell him why. They just said, you know, oh, we'll be in the area. We're going to stop in. And his story was verified, like I'd mentioned, and he was released. He knew nothing of the murders. He didn't help with the murders. He didn't help with harboring the fugitives. He just thought they were, you know, in the area and wanted to visit. So he... He was released. Nelson Birdwell told the police that he only heard about the murders once the three were on their way to Michigan. Obviously, we know that's not true. And at first, the Freeman brothers refused to talk to the police. They didn't want to talk about what they had done. But the Pennsylvania prosecutor announced that he had intentions to try them as adults and he wanted to seek the death penalty. Their public defenders eventually negotiated a deal if the brothers confessed to the murders, the death penalty would be taken off the table. And this deal was accepted. And on March 6th, the authorities in Michigan decided to interview the brothers. And this is where they pled guilty. They told police that all three of them had gone to the movies the night of the murder. They returned to the Freeman home. And when they returned, it was after the brothers' 11 p.m. curfew. So, of course, their mother, Brenda, was very angry because they had broke curfew again. And she told Nelson Birdwell to leave. He kind of pretended to go out the back door, like I'd mentioned earlier. But he came back in after his aunt had went upstairs. And then the three headed down to the basement. She came back down, um, or she came down to the basement shortly after that. She found him hanging out, and she ordered Nelson to get out of the house again. 
And this is when Brian got mad. He went upstairs to the kitchen. He grabbed a kitchen knife and he stabbed his mother. David then admitted to beating his father to death with a metal baseball bat. So they had a metal baseball bat. They had the barbell with the rubber um, from the end removed and they had a pickaxe handle. And here's a quote by Detective Minsberg on how David described killing his father. Quote, he stated that his skull was crushed and it sounded like a watermelon being dropped. Just in a monotone voice with so little emotion, it still haunts me today. End quote. I can definitely understand why that would haunt, you know, a detective, a, a young teenager is describing how his father's skull was just being crushed and there's no emotion, you know. A boy describing killing his father in general with no emotion is, it's a bit haunting. I, I would understand. David eventually claimed that Nelson Birdwell beat 11-year-old Eric with the handle of this pickaxe, but Nelson has always denied this. I I have my opinion. I do believe that he he did it. I just, the way it's set up, I feel like each boy was to take a um, individual in the home and kill them. So, and if Nelson didn't do it, he definitely helped. So the boys entered guilty pleas and then they were extradited back to Pennsylvania on March 8th and eventually fingerprints tied Brian to the knife and David to the baseball bat. And the blood that was noticed on Nelson Birdwell's shirt actually put him in the room when Dennis Freeman was murdered. So whether he um, delivered any blows or not, there was blood found on his shirt. So he was there. So either he did it or he was watching, but he, he was present and he helped in some way. At trial, prosecutors said that Brian confessed to gagging his mother with a pair of shorts before he stabbed her. At Birdwell's trial, evidence was presented that Birdwell assisted David in the bludgeoning of Dennis by hitting him with, with this barbell. And they believed that he alone had killed Eric. They also noted that the pickaxe head had been pried off of the handle already. The rubber grip was missing from the end of this barbell. And this kind of suggested that the weapons had been prepared in advance. So obviously it made them believe that this was premeditated. Now, whether they had planned to do it that night or at another time, you know, hasn't been agreed upon. But I think that what happened was they had premeditated. They knew they were going to murder their family. They just didn't know when yet. And I guess Brenda being angry at the breaking curfew and Nelson still being there, it really set them off and that's when they had decided to do it. Birdwell went to trial in April of 96 and he was convicted of the murder of Dennis Freeman, but he was acquitted in the two others. Brian and David were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So all three were given life without the possibility of parole. And the sad part about this is that no one ever took responsibility for Eric's brutal death. So. This is the sad part to me. He was a little 11 year old boy. He was brutally murdered and none of the men took responsibility. And they were, as far as I know, convicted. None of them were convicted of Eric's death. So it was almost like he was forgotten about. Now, obviously it was brought up in trial and everything, but the family did receive justice. So there was justice served for the deaths, but I just feel like Eric personally, justice wasn't served for him. Yes, his brothers are in prison forever, but the, because no one was actually directly convicted of his murder, is that's the upsetting part to me. 
The Supreme Court made a decision in 2016 about life sentences for people convicted as adults while they're juveniles. So both Brian and David were granted resentencing hearings. And as far as I know, they were still sentenced the same. Nelson Birdwell's sentence was unaffected by that ruling because he was indeed 18 at the time of the murder. So he still remains incarcerated at the State Correctional Institution in Brackville. Weirdly enough, I know where that is. My husband's up, you know, from up near that area. Not in Frackville, but close by. Brian Freeman is currently incarcerated at the State Correctional Institution in Cole Township. And his brother David is at the State Correctional Institution in Mahanoy. There was an interview in 2015 with the Morning Call. It's a local newspaper in Pennsylvania with their maternal aunt. So not Valerie, the one we had been speaking of. That's their father's sister. This is their mother's sister. And she said that both brothers had expressed remorse. In 2017, there was an interview um, with WMFX by Brian or with Brian. And he did acknowledge his guilt. He said he deserved to be in prison. Quote, even after 20 years, it still haunts me and it haunts a lot of people. I did a terrible thing and I absolutely deserve to be punished. End quote. So it is said that these murders actually inspired a, another couple of murders um, and they occurred just four days later. And it was another married couple, um, George and Susan Howarth. They were found murdered in their home and the suspect was their 16 year old son, Jeffrey Howarth. And according to the Washington Post, this Howarth family actually lived only about 10 minutes away from the Freemans. And on the day they were murdered, Jeffrey went to school as normal. Um, no one suspected anything was wrong with him. No one suspected that he had plans to actually murder his parents. But when his parents returned home from work, they found Jeffrey sitting at their dining table with a shotgun in his hand, and he proceeded to kill his mother and his father. And then hours later, Jeffrey's older brother, Stephen, actually made the gruesome discovery of his parents' bodies. And in the local Pennsylvania newspaper, which I mentioned, The Morning Call, it was written that authorities found notes in Jeffrey's bedroom that were written by him. And one of them alluded to the Freeman victims and the killers. And he said, quote, those kids in Salisbury, they were cool. They killed their parents, end quote. I mean, okay then. So obviously there was something going on with him to, you know, look up to people of that sort or look up to, you know, people that killed their parents and think they were cool. But like I mentioned, no one suspected that he had any plans to do this whatsoever. And like the Freeman brothers, Jeffrey also fled the scene to another state. He went to Missouri and he was found there a few days later. And at his trial, the prosecution had stated that he was undoubtedly inspired by the Freeman crimes. But the defense expressed that Jeffrey was mentally ill and he was insane and he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And he was institutionalized at a state hospital. I did a little bit of research on this and there's actually not a whole lot out there, but I guess every year he has to be reevaluated to see if he can be released or not. And as far as I found, he still has not been released. He gets reevaluated, reevaluated every year. And I guess they still believe he's a danger to society. So they keep him um, institutionalized. And that's basically all I could find about that case. But that concludes this episode, so thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of It's Crime Time. I apologize again for the extreme delay, but we all know life happens, and it can get pretty rough some days. You don't feel well, you don't feel motivated, 
And I do enjoy podcasting, as I've said before, but it's not, you know, a primary source of income for me or anything of that sort. It's just a hobby and I really love doing it. So if you enjoyed this, please consider subscribing on whatever platform you get your podcasts. And if you can, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time. Thank you.